You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. You know, there are hundreds of books about Bond, but I think yours stands out for many different reasons, but certainly because... um, you're a little bit tongue in cheek as you you know, but you're you're you certainly love Bond, but at the same time who you doesn't you, right? Who doesn't? But you 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 take it from uh, a, a little I don't know if cynical is the right word, but maybe uh, maybe you can use a better word for that. It's but, not cynical, okay. uh, but it's kind of uh, an affectionately humorous. Okay, I would say as tongue in cheek as Roger Moore often is. So what, what drew you to, I mean, obviously we're all drawn to Bond for, for lots of reasons. What drew you to wanting to write a book? Well, uh, what I wanted to do actually was put Bond into his kind of uh, social and cultural context of the time. Uh, there's been a lot written about the films, but I wanted to put the films in the context of the times in which they were made. And uh, try and explain the mystery of how they, how they did so well. <laughs> because there's so much, actually, that mitigates against the idea of Bond kind of working, really. Because... Um, as I think, was it uh, Doctor No himself? Who was the actor who played Doctor No? It was it was Joseph Wiseman, uh, yeah. and I think I'm right in saying that he described yes. Doctor No as being a Charlie Chan B movie murder mystery. Uh, the point about the Bond movies was, uh, and I think half of the fun of them even now is that there's something always slightly rackety about them. Uh, they, they, they kind of, in narrative terms, they shouldn't work because their mm. structure is kind of all over the place. Uh, they always have some false climaxes. You think it's going to come to an end and then it doesn't. It goes on again. Uh, and yet there's something at the same time kind of joyful about them. And the British particularly have a kind of curious relationship with Bond. We all troop along to see the new Bond movie when it comes out. It's a ritual for kind of every kind of family in Britain. We all watch them on Christmas Day on the TV. Uh, and it particularly used to be the case when we only had sort of three channels in Britain. Uh, the, Christmas de- the Christmas Day Bond movie on TV was a huge deal. It gets 28 million viewers. But together with that, we all can just faintly blush at ourselves. <laughs> what is it that we're enjoying so much? It's, you can't describe it as highbrow. You can't describe right. it as a, a chewy philosophical treat. So what is it about Bond that keeps... And why are we so, so perversely proud of him? So that's what I want to do with the book. And Bond, as he progresses in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s, how the films have always rather cunningly uh, kept pace with the social mores of the right. time and kept themselves going. There's a fantastic statistic you have in your book where you say that half the population of Earth has seen a Bond movie. 
Um, I know. I wonder which Bond movie it was. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's just fast. I mean, that, you, there's no entertainment franchise that you can even come close to that kind of resonance worldwide. Um, I wanted to ask you about the alternate versions that really surprised me. I knew about some of them. Um, I certainly knew about the, the American version of Casino Royale with right. Jimmy Bond. Yes. Um, but it was interesting to see, like, Peter the, very good casting. It's been the Bulgarian version of Bond, and six, or not version of Bond, but they, they, they create their own Bondish type person who actually kills Bond or best <laughs> Bond. Um, and then Radio Moonraker and cartoons, and then uh, the almost American Bond after Lazenby. Uh, leaves the franchise. Um, it, as a historian, we look at things in hindsight and just are, are astonished because Bond just seems right. Like it makes sense that it goes from Connery. Well, no one really talks about Lazenby much, but yeah, it's probably should, one of the better ones. Yeah, but, you yeah. know, the, the Connery, more Timothy Dalton, Pierce. It just seems like literally it makes sense. And yeah. so you see these almost was kind of moments that I think uh, more than anything else. I mean. Worth looking into if you if you if you're interested in a Bond audience, um, the, the book itself really uh, touches upon some what could have been <laughs> more than more <laughs> what than might have what, been. What, what might have been. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you have any anything you talk about with when it comes to that? I mean, I maybe said everything you needed to say. But <laughs> <laughs> well, all this of the different alternate uh, universes of Bond, even this of the original casting of Bond. There's that perpetual kind of uh, argument about. Did Ian Fleming ever really approve of the casting of Sean Connery? Because there were so many stories where Ian Fleming says, oh, he's just a sort of Scottish truck driver. We can't have him. It's ghastly. I want David Niven. And you think, well, David Niven, even by that time, is about 108 years old. Why would you... You don't want David Niven, do you? You just simply don't. Um, and in fact, I heard from uh, Ian Fleming's agent. Uh, so I take him as a particularly good source. Ian Fleming's agent told me that he was thrilled with the casting of Sean Connery from the start because he could see that... Uh, this was the kind of the, the very kind of modern look that would draw in a uh, draw in mm -hmm. the, the the female audience apart from anything else right. as well. Bond has to be for everyone. It can't just be. For, it's not as a kind of gangster movie. So yes, all these um, all these alternate worlds. I also interviewed the actor Julian Glover, who later went on to be a Bond villain in For Your Eyes Only. Uh, he had fantastic time on set, but he had auditioned to be Bond in 1972 before Roger Moore signed up and Julian Glover uh, if you look at the younger pictures of Julian Glover you see actually someone who looks a little bit like Roger Moore but someone just with a slightly more sinister uh, uh, cast to his features which is why he's off, quite often cast as the villain and again you can imagine what it would have been like with Julian Glover as Bond uh, it, the, the series would have still could have kept bulldozing right. on I think sort of, uh, no matter what I you, talk, you write a lot about authenticity uh, and the quest for authenticity, and, and you can certainly see that in the early movies, um, and you can certainly see that in the movies that have just come out. Mm. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the Roger Moore Bond era and some of the plot lines and gadgets. And uh, Do you see that as the a dark period for Bond or just a particularly fun period for no, Bond? No, I think I see it as a, a, a light period for Bond and a light period for the whole of cinema at that time, actually. It's, I don't think it's too great a claim to make that in the early 1970s, American cinema, Hollywood cinema, was very grown up and producing right. very grown up films. There was nothing for kids to go and see. This is before Star Wars. Right. You know, Star Wars broke all that in 77, but before 77, there was nothing really for the family to go and see in American terms. It was all hard-hitting, gritty kind of stuff. Right. Whereas on the British side, at least, we were still producing frothy escapism that everyone could go to. And actually, for that reason, I think Roger Moore 
is my particular favourite film Bond, not only because I grew up with him, I was a kid seeing the Roger Moore films in the cinema, but also because he could have understood that it had to be family friendly, that it had to, that he had to tip the wink to the audience, that there had to be that element of complicity where he would grin at the audience as if to say, this is preposterous, is it not? And the audience would laugh, knowing that it was preposterous, and we would all be in on the joke. But as I say, before 1977, heavens, we needed that kind of escapism very, very badly. So you have the, 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 the wonders of live and let die with Roger Moore wandering through Harlem uh, <laughs> in that kind of velvet-lined overcoat. You've got the man with the golden gun with Christopher Lee sitting there assembling a gun out of a lighter. And you think, even that couldn't have possibly worked. Uh, and you've got the, 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 the glories of The Spy Who Loved Me, where James Bond drives uh, a car through Sardinia, which then becomes a submarine. What more could anyone ask for? It's, and so for that reason, actually, I think the, the, the Roger Moore period is well overdue a critical reappraisal. There's a friend of mine, actually, back in Britain, who is a full-time film critic, who for many years has been very dismissive of the Roger Moore years, has, wouldn't have anything to do with them at all, a solid Sean Connery fan, loves the new Daniel Craig's, I gave him a bumper load of Roger Moore DVDs, up to and including the very unloved A View to a Kill, set in San Francisco. Uh, a View to a Kill has now become his favourite Bond film of the lot. This was the Bond film that the New Statesman described when it came out as being, watching it was akin to lying back and accepting a mental rape. <laughs> well, it doesn't seem like that now. Right. Or does it? <laughs> it's still worth watching. I, I, I think one, one of the interesting things about all the Bond films, and, and is that um, there's a very popular, or it used to be, uh, television show in the United States, Law and Order. I think they had a Law and Order Britain for a little while, but um, th they had this this thing they did when they're trying to promote the show coming up, where they talked about ripped from the headlines. Like this show's right. episode, you know, was exactly what you see in the headlines in your Times. Right. And it seems like Bond was really good at understanding what people were, the, the current events of the day, people were afraid of, what people were thinking about, whether it was from, uh, you know, Elliot Carver being this media mogul, or if it was the uh, nuclear war in Dr. No, or, you know, terrorism, or the Middle East, or anything else. Yeah. Um, or things like honey traps. So, you know, you talk in the book about the fact um, that there were several British bureaucrats that had been caught in honey traps around the same time you're by saying the Russians this, by the it, Russians, so absolutely, yeah. and you see this in the movies. Um, can you speak to that? Because you actually do in the book to some certainly uh, pretty significant extent talk about the fact that how Bond mimics real life and vice versa going in the other direction. It does, uh, but in some ways Bond is even more forward-looking than real life. Uh, the, the, the Bond films, uh, for instance, stopped acknowledging the Russians as enemies after about 1963, after From Russia With Love. Suddenly, the, the, the enemies become the private sector of villainy, or occasionally, like Oric Goldfinger, they're quietly backed by the Red Chinese, but not as any kind of hugely visible thing. It's just a kind of cutaway shot where you might see as a Red Chinese general. I think the same with Blofeld in You Only Live Twice. There is the threat of World War III and the Americans and the Russians are being pitted against each other by this third organization, this kind of private sector organization, Spectre. This was very much in tune with Ian Fleming's thinking. Even back in uh, 1960, Ian Fleming was saying, well, the Cold War, it simply can't go on forever. And he was exploring that thing too. But the films very, very shrewdly uh, kind of stayed one step ahead of that the whole time. So they, they plugged into very contemporary fears. They, you know, the, there are still nuclear bomb countdowns, the very famous one in Goldfinger, where Goldfinger's about to irradiate Fort Knox, mm -hmm. that plays on all that sort of nuclear anxiety. 
but at the same time contains it within a much more kind of uh, a, a, a much kind of cleverer context. And then as the films go on, you get even more inventive kind of villainies. You get in Live and Let Die, I think uh, Dr. Kananga's plot is to flood America with uh, heroin. Mm. And what he's going to do is he's going to give away heroin for free to get the kids of America hooked. And then... Uh, and so Bond somehow... I don't quite know why America being flooded with drugs is the business of an MI6 agent in uh, a fur line... <laughs> Uh, overcoat, but it seemed to be Roger Moore made it his business. And uh, you see, in even the later Roger Moore's, in 1983's Octopussy, which is basically a really a tense moment in the Cold War. You've got oh. Ronald Reagan, the, 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 the rhetoric of the evil empire. Uh, you've got a pre-Gorbachev Soviet Union, where you're still looking at Andropov, Chernyenko, the granite-faced men mm. of the Kremlin, uh, the world in a state of absolute nuclear anxiety. And the, the film Octopussy in 1983 kind of plays on that. But at the same time, once again, the Russians aren't the baddies here. There's a third party who's a baddie. And the thing rather magnificently ends with a countdown of a, a nuclear bomb hidden in a West German circus. It's, it's absolutely kind of ingenious. So they, they had their cake and they ate it. Mm -hmm. they, they, they played on our anxieties, but they put them in a context which was... Uh, which meant that it would last and also which commercially meant that it would sell to uh, nations all over the world as well because the, the, the people who produced the films, the broccolis, were always very aware that, you know, if the Cold War should end, they would want their films to <laughs> get into as many territories as they could. Speaking of which, do you know how popular are the Bond movies in today's Russia or in the former uh, Eastern Bloc? Do I couldn't give you exact statistics, but Bond, but, but, but Bond is everywhere and it's... One of the great things about the new era of Bond with Pierce Brosnan in the 90s, when it, when it came roaring back, was the shock to Western audiences of seeing Bond in Russia, because much of that film is set in St. Petersburg. And there was a sort of genuine air of novelty there, and there was a genuine air of novelty for the Russians, too, uh, to have Bond in mm -hmm. Russia for the first time. That was the side, if you needed, the cold, the, you know, the, the Berlin Wall comes down is one thing, to see Bond in Russia is quite another thing. Well, with a uh, Russian ally as well. And I with mean, a yeah, Russian yeah. ally. Mm -hmm. uh, so, again, the, 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 the Broccoli's, uh, the Broccoli family, for Albert R. Broccoli and his daughter Barbara Broccoli, who now produces the films, are uh, fantastically shrewd at uh, reaching out for new audiences. For instance, it's, it's highly unlikely, I think, that we're going to see Bond facing a Chinese enemy. Um, right. Uh, yeah, uh, your book uh, is published before Skyfall comes yes. out, which for a lot of people is the grittiest and the potentially the darkest of the Bonds. I wanted to get your take on Skyfall, if you could, as a kind of, you know, I, I'm putting you on the spot to a degree. No, but well, absolutely. Well, uh, Skyfall continues the interesting thing they've done with Daniel Craig, which is to make it much more of a character piece. It's, it's a brave thing to do, because you'd imagine there are only, there's only so far you can go with exploring Bond as a character uh, before you, you bump up against too many kind of uh, implausibilities. But the, the, the combination of uh, Daniel Craig and Sam Mendes as director mm -hmm. does seem to give it uh, a kind of depth that we saw there in some nascent terms in Casino Royale. The, the Bond does seem to be a kind of living, breathing uh, human being, as indeed does his boss, M, Judy Dench. Mm. Um, and the villain, too, seems to have a kind of unusually sort of vivid life, uh, and perhaps a slightly sort of poignant life, too. I could have done with a little more jeopardy, I have to say. Okay. My, my only quibble with the film was that the, the, the set pieces were fine, but 
not quite enough Jeopardy. Um, well, Jeopardy for everyone else except for Bond, really. I mean, MI6 MI blows MI6 up. MI6 blows up. Uh, th yes, Judy Dench has to be taken to the yeah. Highlands of Scotland. Uh, one thing I'd like to know, I was discussing this actually with, uh, with uh, my boss at Orem Publishing. When Bond drives Judy Dench all the way up to Scotland from London, uh, we only see them arriving at dawn in Scotland. What we want to know was what the hell do they talk about in that car all the way through that journey? And did M make Bond play some very naff CDs? On its, you know, was it, were they listening to Elkie Brooks? Were they sucking car sweets? Were they stopping off at motorway service stations for beans on toast? We've got to think there's a sequel to, be sequel to Skyfall to be done here, and that's the drive to Scotland. Right. Uh, so I, I want to ask you about a conspiracy theory or two. Uh, that I've run into and to see what you think about the Bond idea is mm. one of the most popular ones is that Bond is not a person's name it's a code name and that you can explain the fact that you have 50 plus years of Bond because it's just James Bond is not a person it's a it's a code name have you, have you heard this this before or I mean no I haven't but do they mean by that that the character himself is kind of cipher uh, like that, that, that can, anyone in theory could be born rather like the, the, the NAF Casino Royale that was produced in 1967 where you get five James Bonds one of whom is played by Peter Sellers yeah I think that the idea would be that Sean Connery was codenamed James Bond and then right. as he retired it became George Lazenby and then got right. Connery back from retirement and that's a way right. that Bond could exist in the 60s and still exist in 2014 right because when you join MI6 you became 007 that came with the code name right. James Bond <laughs> I think it's a. I, I, I it's don't. A nice I don't idea. subscribe to it. But it's I think a it's nice idea, but no one. But no one said in the early days of cinema, uh, the, the, whoever followed Johnny Weissmuller as Tarzan. They right. didn't say that Tarzan was a code name for the different actors who could have. Uh, I think they dropped Johnny Weissmuller because uh, the, the producer said he just got too fat. We can't fat Tarzan, <laughs> uh, so they got a new one. And there's an effort of that slightly, but the, obviously Sean Connery wasn't dropped, but he was getting a bit heavy by the end. I think it's always easier for the British to take on board this idea of Bonds changing the whole time uh, because we've got another long-running uh, thing, the sci-fi drama Doctor Who, which right. has been going on since 1963. And every now and then they get tired of the lead actor and chuck him out and say, oh, he's, he's regenerated, uh, but he's still the Doctor, even though completely different, looks, sounds completely different. And I think to a certain extent, that's kind of half the fun of Bond too. You, you kind of have to recast him every three, every few years because you you very much want to see a different actor's take on it. Right. Uh, rather grandly, you might say, rather like Hamlet, you wouldn't want to see the same actor doing Hamlet the whole right. time. Um, We've done that here very unsuccessfully with the Jack Ryan series, where now there's been four different actors who have played Tom Clancy's secret right. agent Jack Ryan. Well, actually, yes, yeah. I wanted to ask you, why yeah. is it that the Americans have never? really ever managed to produce a successful rival to Bond? Well, now you're putting me on the spot. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Um, I'm interested. Yeah, no, I, I think that's an interesting question as well. I mean, I, 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 um, I'm not entirely sure. I think a lot of the, the Ryan, that would be the only one that even come close. I mean, Bourne tried, um, but Robert Mission Ludlum's, Impossible films? Mission Impossible films. I mean, they became, uh, because, I think because the show, the TV show itself was not particularly successful I um, mean it was for a time but then it kind of fizzled out and then it took so long to kind of re-energize it in the films yeah um, it, I think you have the believability factor of Tom Cruise who in real life is like five foot three right um, well Daniel Craig's only about three foot six but oh, I mean, that's, well, you know, that but he's built like a, a slab of granite versus right. yeah right. and I think that has a lot to do with um, and then of course I mean, Sean Connery was humongous I mean you know former Mr. Universe or got very high levels of Mr. Universe yeah. um, actually and, I'll take that back about Daniel Craig I think he's probably five 
one, five two. <laughs> so yeah, so he uh, he's he and Cruz free, are probably he's not about the same. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, I, I. And then the problem with the the Jack Ryan films is actually the first one I think was Bond himself, Sean Connery. He the Hunt for Red October, uh, right, right? Where uh, right. the potential to have Harris at least the scuttlebutt is that Harrison Ford was was Tom Clancy's ultimate goal to be Jack Ryan from the very beginning, but because Hunt for Red October. Jack Ryan literally wasn't the lead. Marco Ramius, which is Sean Connery's character, was a lead, and so Harrison Ford passed on it. And Alec Baldwin was a great Jack Ryan, but I think that the star power itself didn't launch the franchise the way that they wanted to. Right. And it got bogged down in some of the, you know, the, the uh, Patriot Games is fantastic, but you look at uh, Clear and Present Danger, which had such a convoluted plot. And you know, some Bond movies have convoluted plots too, but you kind of don't need the plot in most Bond movies. It's no, bad you know, guy killed the bad guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and so, I, and, I, and so, I think that you know, perhaps there was a, a realism issue where uh, you try to make it too realistic, and you lost a lot of the audience. And, and then, and then, of course, when Ben Affleck becomes Jack Ryan, there's a there's there's some Affleck uh, backlash at that point. But perhaps yeah. it's interesting to see. Um, well, the other, I mean, the other, the other side of the question is that, uh, of course, Hollywood did get there first with Bond because in 1959, Alfred Hitchcock directed North by Northwest, which is in essence right. the first Bond movie. It's just if you look at it, it it has the kind of crazy structure of a Bond movie, and you have this figure at the centre of it, uh, Cary Grant, uh, playing Roger Thornhill, who isn't a spy. He's a Madison Square right. uh, ad executive who is mistaken for a spy, uh, but because he's sharply dressed uh, and very suave, very smooth, and very witty. He slowly steps into the shoes of a spy, and by the end of the film, which is just extraordinarily exciting and extraordinarily funny, he is an incredibly proficient action hero. There he is raiding the villain's Frank Lloyd Wright house up in North Dakota, near, uh, near Mount Rushmore. Have I got my states right? South Dakota. South Mount Dakota. Rushmore, yep. Uh, and you lead to a, actually a very, very Bondian climax. It has all the Bond elements. It has uh, the, the hero meeting a lady friend on the train, a slightly saucy back chat on the train, leading to a, a night spent together. You've got the action set pieces. You've got the crop duster scene. Right. Uh, absolutely, you know, the Bond would have killed for that scene. And then you've got a climax on the faces of, of Mount Rushmore, which is incredibly kind of Bondian. The whole template for the Bond films was kind of set down in North right. by Northwest. And so Hollywood most certainly did get there first. Well, and, and, and don't worry, 80% of Americans don't know where Mount Rushmore is either. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think you might have really hit upon something interesting is, is if I'm thinking about the Bourne films, the Jack Ryan films, it's almost this accidental spy where the, the American franchises have where – you know, there's the, the the scene in Hunt for October where he, I'm an analyst. You know, I'm not supposed to be on this South Soviet submarine. And then Bourne just wants to be left alone. He's not an accidental spy, but he doesn't want to be a spy. And, and perhaps that is the American response of this kind of, uh, you know, where you know we're, we're we're trying to present this person as you know reluctantly being pulled into a situation that we would want to be in. The the, the old idea of Yes, we'll join the Second World War if you make us. And yes, we'll join yes. the First World yes. War if you make us. Yes. And I mean, again, I'm not a cultural historian. By but any, again, this, but is why think, the, this is why the story yeah. of Bond has a particular resonance in Britain. Because while Britain actually is declining in real terms throughout the, the, the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, we, we lose an empire, the economy uh, starts to plummet, uh, everything terrifically gloomy, but we, thank God we still at least have Bond. And so we still have this figure striding into a wood-paneled office with a, a, a cozy boss with a pipe, M, sitting there saying, well, here we are. 
are for your eyes only bond only you can save the world and you think damn right only the British can save the world you need us and which is why Felix Leiter uh, the world's most right. inefficient I would think uh, secret agent is always calling upon his friend James Bond uh, to help save the world even in cases such as Diamonds Are Forever where Bond is called upon to investigate diamond smuggling in Las Vegas slightly out of the remit of right. MI6 I would have thought but this is also at a time when you know we use terms such as MI6 and MI5 freely now it's funny to remember, in the 1970s, those terms weren't used out loud in Britain. They weren't printed in newspapers because those departments officially didn't exist. Right. And whenever Bond had an exterior shot of uh, the headquarters, all it said was the little sign on the brass plaque saying universal exports. Mm -hmm. There was nothing so vulgar as uh, acknowledging the MI6 headquarters that they do now. That was half the thrill of it, that all of it was still in the shadows, that newspapers could still be served with D-notices, as they mm. were called, uh, by the security services to, to stop the newspapers publishing certain certain things. And that is the, the, the glamour of it, was that the bond was our, our window into this mysterious world. Well, I, I appreciate you sitting down with us. I, I, I don't want to let you go without talking about your new book uh, on Dunkirk. Um, what is it you want to get to the survivors of this, certainly before they... Uh, they begin to pass away, or they continue to pass away. Was this was yes. this a kind of a, a focus of why you're publishing this book at the time you are? Uh, uh, partly that, and also partly uh, because it's just a, it's a fascinating moment in British history. It's it's not just a military story. It's a story that goes it's, it's a story that goes far wider than that. It's Britain in May June 1940, after months and months of a phony war, uh, because war was declared in Britain mm -hmm. uh, against Germany on September the third, 1939, and then there was a kind of whole nine months where practically nothing happened apart from a bit of rationing. The moment of Dunkirk and the Dunkirk story is all about uh, an entire nation being given a kind of uh, an electric shock, really, a kind of a shot of uh, pure adrenaline, when soldiers, very, very young men who'd barely been trained uh, with very little in the way of equipment, suddenly found themselves looking at this absolutely ineluctable enemy. Um, and what should have been really held as a kind of a, a horrible, humiliating, miserable retreat, uh, instead suddenly, instantaneously became uh, a moment where the entire nation kind of leapt in spirits. Suddenly right. morale shot through the roof. This is not something that Churchill himself seemed to be anticipating. Churchill had only been Prime Minister for a couple of weeks when the Dunkirk evacuation happened, when half a million Allied soldiers were lifted from that French beach, saved from these oncoming German forces. Churchill himself, uh, in his speeches, you hear uh, a certain level of pessimism. The famous, the immortal speech, we will fight them on the beaches, we will fight them on the hills, we will fight in the streets. If you look at that kind of imagery, what you're looking at is, is him describing guerrilla warfare. Right. And if you're fighting guerrilla warfare, it's, it's pretty much over. I think Churchill and the Ministry of Information were, were, were taken aback, and pleasantly so, by the fact that the British people saw these troops coming back on trains. And instead of feeling doomy and miserable about the oncoming invasion, which everyone expected, everyone in Britain expected this Nazi invasion to start any moment, uh, instead they started putting the bunting up, and there was cheering in cinemas whenever soldiers appeared. And the soldiers were mobbed at railway stations, like, like film stars or like pop stars. And the soldiers themselves were haunted, haggard, you know, all the horrible, horrible things they'd seen on those beaches. That just the extraordinary ordeal that they'd been through. 
suddenly found themselves surrounded by these extraordinary smiling faces. So for everyone, uh, it was a fantastically moving national moment and made the Battle of Britain and everything after that possible. Well, the, the evacuation itself has to be one of Britain's finest hours. I mean, every every type of boat from large ships to small little yes. boats that could yes. cross every, the channel. Everything, I mean, everything from naval destroyers to the smallest coracle, which I think yeah. could be found in a museum somewhere, went, went sailing over to, to pick up as I say, almost half a million soldiers. It's an extraordinary kind of operation in nine, just in nine days and under continual bombardment from, uh, from the Germans from above. So we've got wide open beaches where thousands upon thousands of soldiers are sitting very, very, very low on food, very low on water, some almost delirious and walking into the waves, imagining that they could simply walk back to England and no one could stop them. Mm-hmm. Um, I had the chance to interview uh, a, a young sailor who was put in charge of 150 men on the beach, and he was given a gun. And the gun was not for shooting at German bombers. It was to keep the English soldiers in line, just in case there was hysteria. Mm. There wasn't. He, hadn't, he didn't have to use the gun. But, what, yes, I mean, you've got a, a, a story a, a, rather like Bletchley. You've got this uh, element of just absolute British, unself-conscious eccentricity. But, as you say, all these little boats all these pleasure steamers, all these paddle steamers that were used for kind of holiday makers uh, to take them to the Isle of Wight suddenly go sailing over into this inferno mm-hmm. where they're being bombed left, right and centre. They're being shot at left, right and centre. And the soldiers are being taken back to Britain on boats which still have cocktail bars and they're given stew and little cocktail glasses. Uh, some soldiers, even despite the ordeal they've been through, are fantastically upset because they put their cigarettes in their backpacks and other cigarettes are soaking and they can't... <laughs> All the way through, you get these extraordinary glimpses of, kind of not just of humanity, but fantastic kind of laugh-out-loud humanity in the face of the absolute utmost horror. Well, Sinclair McKay, thank you for taking the time out to talk with us here at the International Spy Museum. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's very um, good to be here. You, uh, your books can be found everywhere great books are sold, uh, <laughs> uh, whether you want to get them from Amazon or from actually online uh, for the Spy Museum bookstore, as we, uh, we carry uh, your book certainly on code breaking and on uh, the Bond uh, book. Uh, so uh, please uh, take the time uh, to check out the website or and, and check out Sinclair McKay's books uh, because from top to bottom they're all incredibly well done and incredibly interested. Interesting. Thank um, you. So thank you for taking the time. No, thank you very much. Thank you. Th- thank you very much. Thank you. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's spycast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month.